want to thank our sponsor, Boltony Watches, who create unique, vintage-inspired military designs that are sure to turn heads. When Boltony was formed, they look to be inspired by the past, but focus on modern materials and manufacturing. Their watches have fully automatic movements, sapphire glass, anti-reflective coating, and high-quality finishing on their stainless steel cases. Many watch brands have invested huge costs in marketing and distribution, and these costs are inevitably passed down to the customer. At Boltony, they focus on watchmaking and being a small company gives them a competitive edge in terms of pricing. Make sure you check them out at boltony.co.uk. Thank you and enjoy. But uh, one of our favourite topics on the channel is DACT or BFM. How did the F3 fare against? Did you go up against the Lake Neath F15s or any <clears throat> European nations? You know, let me think about this for a minute. I, I flew against F16s, uh, the Dutch F16s, um, and I flew against the Mirage 2000s, the French, down on the Exercise in the UAE, and. Uh, you know, believe yeah, I think I, I think we did do a little bit with the American F-15s out of Lake and Heath, but also the Saudi F-15s who are not very good and on the same exercise down oh, in really? UAE. Yeah, um, I think it was a TLP they called it back in the days, and and it was uh, trouble one. We had a squadron of Mirage 2000, some American F-16s out of uh, some base in New Mexico, and then the. Uh, the uh, Saudi uh, F-15 squadron was there as well. So we, we, we did stuff with all of those guys, you know. Did you get your book kicked a lot against the F-16s maybe? <laughs> no, nah, you know, that's it's funny you said that. My very first tactical sortie that I recall in Trouble One, I show up and, uh, you know, I'd gotten to know the people, I'd flown a few sorties around, and the, uh, the, um, the flight was a, uh, you know, the F-3 at the time had just um, started flying with the AMRAAM, mm -hmm. Block 5 AMRAAM. The the Royal Air Force just just got it. I, I feel like the uh, the Navy already had it, the Royal Navy, but we were starting to fly with it, right? And obviously, I'd been flying with it my whole career, so I was, I you know, I kind of understood how the AMRAAM worked and everything, and, and people were still learning it. And we were doing a 4v4 against some Dutch F-16s. One of my first flights, I was uh, Dash 4, you know, just the wingman, had no no part in the flight other than join up and shut up, you know, <laughs> and I'm okay with that, you know, on exchange. Um, and so the, the flight lead is briefing a grinder, that's a tactic, um, and it's a good AMRAAM tactic, you know, but it's, it's very complicated, and it can fall apart really quick doing it. And he was briefing this, and I'm listening to the brief, and, and I understand grinder tactics. I've you know, been doing that for a long time. And, and I'm listening, the brief was very sound, and, and all, all the guys I flew with in trouble were all sharp, smart people. And I'm like, oh, that's a pretty good brief. I'm interested to see how this is gonna go, right? Mm. And granted, it's nobody's fault. They were new with the AMRAM, so they were just starting to do this grinder tactic, and it might have been his first time to ever do it. You know, I don't know. So we get airborne and we go meet the Dutch out over the North Sea. And we don't have a lot of, they don't have a lot of gas yeah. and time left. I think they might've had a tanker actually, but you know, it had to be a pretty quick exercise, but they're gonna be uh, adversaries for us and we're gonna set up a grinder. So we start setting up this grinder and, and we have Link 16 in the tornado, which was cool to me at the time because we didn't have it yet. We had mids, very similar, but we, we, didn't, we were just starting to get it when I left to come on exchange. 
and uh, I'm watching all this fold out, you know, and, and everything seems to be going good. And then the Dutch, obviously, very skilled. I was very impressed with the Dutch F-16 guys. Mm. I, I thought that they were good aviators. They, they employed their, their system well because I think they had older F-16s too. But they obviously knew what we were doing and they were dragging all of our missiles off. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, I know what I would do in this situation. You know, I'd, you know, I'd stop doing this grinder because pretty soon we're going to be out of missiles and it's going to be one v one with the, you know, heaters and guns only. And that's what happened. Oh. Sooner or later, we're all out of missiles, and that's when the, uh, the F-16s, you know, came to the merge, and, and it didn't go well at all. <laughs> and it wasn't because the F-16 was better than the F-3, it was just the tactic set up. It, just, it was a learning lesson. And the funny thing is, if that happened in America, we'd spend all day debriefing it, right? We'd right. be looking at everybody's tapes, you know, getting a, you know, everybody would get beat up over it. And we go back to, <laughs> we go back to the debrief, and, and I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, wow, this is going to be interesting how this goes in the flight. I think it might have been a Friday, too. So we wanted to get over to the club. <laughs> and uh, the flight lead just goes, well, that didn't go very well, did it? And everybody's like, no, nope, it didn't. He goes, all right, see y'all later. We left. <laughs> I thought that was, I was like, I am in the right place now. This is awesome. The ball's open. Let's yeah, go. because I was mad. I was like, oh, we're going to be here all day now. Because in America, it was over. You know, yeah. you're going to sit there and debrief that. Yeah. But, but I thought it was great. That's you great. Know, it made, made it a better experience. Absolutely. Yeah. So you mentioned, yeah, your, your frontline squadron was treble one. Is this normal to go into a frontline squadron? Because I've interviewed a few people and they go to the OCU as uh, instructors. Uh, I think for the Marines, I can't, I, I do know there was a Navy guy in the OCU as an instructor, but he didn't come there until after about the time I was leaving treble one. There was no other American in that squadron, but I think they generally had a Navy. I believe a Tomcat guy in 56 squadron was an instructor during the time I was there. Um, but the Marines, from what I understand, I always had a place in uh, Trouble One. And the reason I say that, because the squadron pictures that were on the wall, you know, you could go through there and I could identify the Marine and the squadron going all the way back. And Roy right. McIntyre would talk about them, you know, mm -hmm. guys that are way gone. And then I went to the Sundown the, uh, when the F3 decommissioned. I guess I guess that's what you guys call it. Up in uh, Lukers, I, I came in, in to, to, to attend that, and I met a few other Marines that were, you know, older guys at the time. I, I mean, I'm an old man now. I thought they were old, but they they seemed like that then. But they were uh, they were former exchange guys in Trouble One. Yeah. And one of them was an F4 driver. You know? Oh, nice. Yeah. So how did you feel uh, being on that squadron? Because obviously there was a bit of rivalry with 43, wasn't there? Uh, yeah, there was. There was an Air Force guy in 43 squadron. Um, who was a friend of mine. He and I made friends. Uh, Ivan Sudak, he was a good dude. And uh, um, yeah, they were a little bit of a rival with us. You know, we, we had, you know, different mentalities. I think we flew the same, but to me, they seemed a little more uptight than Trouble One did, you know, but I don't know. They probably thought the same. Yeah, yeah there's just, just normal rivalries. Yeah. yeah. Did you ever meet up in the old club or anything like yeah, that? Yeah, all the time. And, uh, and a lot of the guys, you know, one thing I noticed about the Royal Air Force, people seemed to either anchor in a squadron for a long time or people rotated a lot, right? Because when I went to the OCU, some of the instructors that I was that taught at the OCU eventually ended up in my squadron. Right. And then some guys that were over in 43 squadron came over to treble one and some treble one guys would go over to 43 squadron, you know, but everybody has their loyalties. As soon as they left and went to the other side, we never really talked to them again and they didn't yeah. talk to us kind of deal. So. Yeah. So did you fly the F3 on any large exercises or NATO exercises? Ooh, uh, 
We went to we went over to America in it to a mountain home Air Air Force Base. Oh, really? Flew an exercise over there during my time here, our time with the Royal Air Force. Uh, we went to uh, the UAE to Al Dafra and uh, did that tactical leadership uh, TLP exercise. Tactical leaders. Yeah, yeah, leadership. yeah. It, it, and I'm not sure if they still do those anymore. But we went over there. That's when we were with the Mirage, the F-15s, the American F-16s. Um, let me think. I think I did a couple around here in the UK, you know, um, there was a big exercise with the GR4s that we hosted. It was like a, a, a countrywide exercise, I remember, and, and briefing it up and doing stuff here. And there was a carrier strike group over the north of Scotland that was involved with that, just mm -hmm. a big exercise. Mm -hmm. But some of the exercises I didn't get to go on, um, I remember the squadron went to Spain on one and they couldn't that take all of one. us. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, went to Gibraltar, enjoyed that one. Went there to shoot the banner, you know, we towed the banner and yeah. gun it. Um, and I remember going to, uh, I want to say, oh, Hungary. Went to Hungary and fought uh, the Hungarian MiG-29s. That was pretty cool. Oh, that's yeah, nice. that was really, <laughs> really cool. cool. Yeah, they were not very good, but they were you oh, know, they're they're a fun bunch of guys. Yeah. yeah, I think they were dealing with some maintenance issues the whole time. So right. Like that, so. Just out of interest, so um, was there a GR1 or GR4 posting before you got the F3, Did or was it just F3 when you were going for the exchange? Well, I, as far as I know, just the F3, you know, I think the Navy, when I went to, uh, before I flew in the OCU, I had to go to RAF Valley, and I actually had to go to ground school for the Hawk, and I actually flew the Hawk for like six weeks. And I did that at BAE Wharton, like the BAE pilots. Wharton, did it. Right. Yeah, yeah, I went up there, and at the time, all exchange guys. Just and I, I'm not sure what the background was, but you know, it taught us the air traffic control procedures and the differences in the you know UK. But I, I flew the Hawk for like six weeks. I got like twenty some hours in the Hawk flying. And it's a fun little jet. Oh, it was awesome, and uh, and it was once again with civilian guys from BAE. Uh, and that's all they did. So they were great. These well, why two did guys. that happen? That seems a bit odd. I, yeah, yeah. You know, back back in the days, that's I went to ground school in uh, in Aria Valley, then went up to Wharton and flew, and lived in a hotel there. On uh, I remember the, the it was in Ray Green, a little village. Right. I would say Ray Green, but I think it's W R E A. However, it was pronounced. Right. But it was really nice. I, it was really a lovely time and. And flew with those guys. It treated well. The both names were John. They were ex. Uh, uh, I think one of them flew Buccaneers, and uh, then GR ones, and the other guy was a GR one guy. Both very highly talented, you know, aviators, and flew with those guys. It was really nice. Mm -hmm. But anyway, we just did basic air work, uh, mainly air traffic control procedures. We just would take off and bounce around all of the UK, going to do approaches at different bases and. Wow. You know, still it didn't teach me anything because I still couldn't understand what anybody was telling me. <laughs> but you we know, paid for a but I was just having a good time, <laughs> looking exactly. out the window, and you know, yeah. did a little low level, did some one v one stuff. It was mm -hmm. a great time with those guys. But that's uh, that's how I initially started into it, and then from there went to uh, Koningsby for the simulators. Yeah. So getting back to Treble One, um, <laughs> did you get? Many questions from the guys there, like obviously Top Gun experience, all that. And did you quiz them? Did they quiz you? Uh, y yes and no. Um, I think that they, 
they, you know, they knew that I had just come back from Iraq, right? And and actually, Trouble One was over there too, you know, when I was there too. So we would share stories about how things were going over there for, you know, because I was flying off the aircraft carrier there, and they were, you know, I think they were over in Saudi Arabia, if I remember right. And uh, so we would, you know, just share stories about different things and put two and two together, same place, same time. I was trying to always find out who it was who almost ran over us in the tanker stack. And of course, it was 43 squad. Of course. You know, you know but, they, you know, who knows what really happened yeah. there. I, I thought it was funny. Um, but, uh, yeah, we would, we would talk tactics. Like I said, the, the Amram was new to them. So I would, you know, inject my opinion on some things about how to operate it or what to use. Because at the time, you know, I, I don't want to get into any kind of classification level stuff, but from what I understand and, and I could tell from being there, they did not buy the, uh, the uh, manuals for it or they no. were not sold some of the tactical manuals for the... Uh, from the AMRAM, and and the reason I always heard was because they were in development at the time of the Meteor missile, mm -hmm. which was in direct competition to the to the AIM-120, right? So I can understand. So they had this missile, but they didn't have all the manuals to how to use it properly, and the uh, the F3 didn't have medium PRF built into the radar, you know, and which is you know really part of the whole process of of employing an AIM-120. So it made some limitations on the AIM-120 that I didn't fully understand, that they understood, but I understand other things about the AMRAM. So, you know, we worked together pretty well with that. John Shields and the weapons flight, Gilly, uh, another guy in there I worked with a lot, and, and they were super sharp guys. And, and in fact, they probably taught me some things about the AMRAM that I never took the time to notice because they paid attention. But yeah, that, that we would exchange ideas about that. But all the other tactics that the Royal Air Force was using were identical almost to what the Marine Corps was using. Oh, wow. Yeah, VID scenarios and stuff like that. Absolutely, it's like right out of our books. You know, wow. we shared the information. Somehow, some way, we were doing the same thing. Wow. And that was very refreshing to me. It made life easy for me. Mm -hmm. you know? Did you ever get to buzz the tower or do any like flybys of the airfields or anything no, like that? You know, one thing, you know, in the Royal Air Force, once again, I, I'm, I think you guys have an awesome tradition, right? You know, you, you love the Royal Air Force, you know, and you're treated better than a lot of us, you know, the, the American you know, public thinks of our military sometimes. Um, you know, you know, we come into the overhead, right? The break, the overhead. Uh, to land, you know, in the U.S., you know, you're limited. Uh, basically, a lot of them, a lot of the bases are in Class Bravo airspace, so you're going no more than 300, 350 knots in the break. Here it was no problem. You know, you come into the break here and 200 feet and do a pitch up break and stuff like that, and it was just part of the the culture. Or do a a break, you know, all kinds of uh, a break out of a looser formations and stuff. And I always found that fun. It just added an edge to the flight that was just enjoyable for me doing stuff like that, you know. I'm guessing you did, but did you ever attend any of the famous Lucas Air Shows? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Every year I was there, I went to the Air Show because I had to work at it, you know. I oh, to, did you? Right. Well, you know, I had to. I had to wear my Marine uncomfortable uniform and work in the like the VIP tent, you know, welping, welcoming people and stuff. I always, you know, it's part of the duty of being yeah. in the military, right? No, I enjoyed it. Really nice. Mm -hmm. Did you ever meet um, any U.S. guys when you were on base, like uh, from other squadrons that came to visit, you know, uh, anything like that happen? You know, every now and then there was... Uh, 
there would be a, an F-15 crew that would divert or what, for whatever reason, they, but they were all out of Lake and Heath, would come through here. Mm. And you know, I'd see them at the officer's club and things like that, mm -hmm. chit chat them. They were always, you know, was, anytime I ran into Americans on exercises, they were always, you know, interested to see that there was a Marine flying with the Royal Air Force because I'd let my hair grow, you know, it was, it wasn't a Marine haircut at the time, no. I had long sideburns and, <laughs> you know, but I still wore the Marine flight suit, but I didn't have my rank on the shoulders um, like the Royal Air Force does. Um, I remember one time the Commandant of the Marine Corps, um, uh, not with the Commandant, he was uh, General Jones, who was the former Commandant, went over, I think he was a European commander or something, a, a co-comp commander, and he was known to pass through Lukers. You know, there was, uh, and one time I landed and there was a, a G4 with Marine painting on it, you know, All right. parked on the base. And I was like, uh-oh, as I'm taxiing in. And that was like the longest my hair had been. I, I had like sideburns down below my ears. And, you know, and I remember thinking, you know, any Marine general is going to land on a base and, you know, the base commander is going to meet him if he's a four star. And he's going to, and, and, you know, group, you know, the, the guy, you know, that ran Lukers was an awesome dude. And, and he, he would have definitely said, hey, we got one of your Marines here on base. Uh -huh. And he would have said, well, let me go by and just say hi to him. And then I was, I just figured I was about to get out of this airplane with long hair and these sideburns, you know, and he was, <laughs> he was going to break my sword and put me in the airplane and take me back with him. So, yeah. you know, I was thinking if I would have had a knife on me at that point, I probably would have gave myself a haircut in the airplane <laughs> as I'm taxing in. So. so do you have any, you probably have a few again, but uh, maybe you share one or two stories from your time on the F3. Uh, well, you know, there was... Um, I, I mean, fighting the airplane, once again, nothing, nothing dramatic to talk about as far as it was very benign as far as same stuff I did in America. Some of my best experiences were just the general everyday flying of the F3. Um, I remember one time me and Kenny Reeves were in uh, Belgium and we got to our airplane and our oxygen isn't working. I don't. I, they had serviced it there and messed it up, and we needed to get the airplane back to Lukers. Right. And so he was like, "Hey, that's no problem. We'll just fly back at you know below ten thousand feet. You know, which was an experience for me leaving Belgium, flying across <laughs> Europe at like eight thousand feet, like wow. almost VFR, then out over the North Sea all the way back. And you know, with his expertise and experience, it seemed like nothing. You know. Uh, flying with Roy McIntyre, you know, I mean, truly an honor to even, you know, call him a friend and have flown with him. He, one of my first flights at Tr uh, Trouble One was with Roy. We went out, did a low level, and he took me on a tour of Scotland. You know, he's, oh, nice. you know, he knows a little bit about Scotland, you yeah, know. And so we went out and uh, we literally flew over Scotland and he, he uh, was just getting me familiar with the uh, airspace there and the ranges and stuff, but he was able to point out every historical spot in the, the whole country up there for me. You know, those are the things I remember the most, mm -hmm. you know, because it's, it was a novelty, you know, to come over here and, and be able to do this. Yeah, know, absolutely. Uh, and before we wrap up the tornado part, as you can see, we've got my helmet here. How did you feel wearing the RAF gear compared to the Marine gear? It took a little while to get used to, you know, the helmet's much more bulkier. You know that that, but obviously I felt like it would protect me better than some of the lighter weight stuff we wear. Um, the mask that the uh, Royal Air Force wore—it's uh, probably a little more functional and a little more comfortable once you get used to it. But at, initially, I, I didn't like it. You know, it just felt funny only because I had grown up wearing the the fuller mask, 
and it would literally cut off right here. You know, it's just, and so it just felt weird at first. Uh, but like anything else, after flying with it, you know, you know, 50 hours, you're totally used to it. It didn't matter. But yeah, the gear was top notch. Um, one thing that really caught me, my attention is the night vision goggles we fly with oh, yeah. Royal, Air, Royal Air Force. The ones we flew with at the time in the Marine Corps were called Anvis 9s, and they were very lightweight. Um, the ones that we flew with in the RAF were much heavier and they they stuck on top of your helmet obviously but i remember there was there was debt cord uh there was a connection that built in you plugged in your seat all right and there was explosive inside oh. the uh, goggles that were activated if you pulled your 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 ejection handle it would blow them off your head wow. because they were so heavy that they had a few instances i think unfortunately where people had had injuries from the ejection just from the weight of it pulling it down and I remember never plugging that thing in. I'm like, there ain't no way. <laughs> don't blame you. Yeah, I, I just don't think I'm gonna eject today. I'm not gonna plug this in and have, be flying around and have this thing pop off on top of my head. <laughs> but yeah, it was the equipment was. I thought the equipment in in America we wear we wore immersion suits when flying in really cold waters. When I showed up here, I didn't realize that you do that every day flying out of Lukers, and I was really, uh oh, this is not going to be good because the ones we have in America are extremely uncomfortable, right? right. It's like a medieval torture device you're wearing <laughs> flying around. But the, the equipment the Royal Air Force had was top notch. You know, everything fit real good. It was very comfortable and you get used to it. It was never a problem, you know, flying with it. I think there was only six weeks out of the year, you know, that you didn't fly with it. And I think a lot of times the reason we went on dead is just so we wouldn't have to fly with our, <laughs> with our emergency. So, you yeah. know. Yeah. So overall, did you enjoy your time on the F-3 and in the UK? Wouldn't trade it for anything. I have nothing but respect for the Royal Air Force and all the aviators I flew with, all the NAVs I flew with. I couldn't be more impressed. I tell my friends back in America all the time. I mean, I think the quality, the quality of the pilots that I experience in the Royal Air Force, the junior guys come into their first squadron like well above what the American guys are when oh, they wow. show up, right? And I think the American guys, you know, get, they just get tactics beat into them and basic air work is second. Right. And the British guys show up and I mean, they are just, they were already a level at as a wingman, you know, they join up, they don't lose sight of you, they're right where they need to be, they sound crisp on the radios. So the, the training environment in the United Kingdom is obviously top notch because I was super impressed with the young guys showing up. So the airman ships there when they get on. Absolutely, the yeah. I'm super impressed with that. Good stuff. So how many hours did you get on the F3? Oh, I don't shoot, man. I don't know. I'd have to look at my logbook. Um, I flew it a little over three years, or right at three years. I probably have about 600 and something hours in it, probably. Very, very good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe a little more, maybe a little less. I'd have to look. I never really thought of that. But yeah, three years flying it. Yeah. So Nugs, you also flew the F-5 as an aggressor. Can you tell us how this came about? Yeah, you know, I was, uh, after my exchange tour, um, you know, I did a few other things and then I got selected for command uh, in the Marine Corps and I was got command of the Marine Adversary Squadron. Um, when I originally found out I was getting the F-5 squadron, I was, I'm not gonna lie, I was a little disappointed, right? Oh. Because I had been nothing but a carrier guy, so I assumed if I was lucky enough to get command, I would, I would probably go back to the boat. Um, but I, I'm, when I found out, I, I was just happy to have command because as an aviator, there's not a lot of commands for you in the Marines. Right. But 
it turned out to be one of the best tours I could ever imagine. So it's in Yuma, Arizona. I had, uh, at the time I had 13, no, at the time when I show up, I think we had 14 F5s. Um, my boss was not even on the base. I worked for a different boss. So I had my own, like, word you guys can relate with, my own fiefdom or fiefdom or whatever. You know, I was the boss, the king. Um, I had uh, excellent maintenance and excellent pilots. Most all of my pilots were weapons school guys oh, or right. air combat tactics instructors. And it, it was really nice. We had a uh, former Swiss Air Force F5s that they had, had uh, souped up and called them F5Ns. Um, and they had uh, just pulse radars in them, so the radar wasn't that great, but it had a lot of other little Gucci things in it that we we could use. And and we you know did the same thing almost every day. It was all air to air, you know, supporting. We supported uh, the Fleet Marine Force. Sometimes we'd support the Air Force as well. We okay. did a debt supporting F-22s um, when I was there. And we fly, flew an aggressive schedule. And my two years there, I want to say we flew almost uh, 8,000 hours of flight time. Wow. And don't quote me on that, but I, I'm pretty sure, or no, I'm sorry, not flight time, sorties. Because we would fly uh, day in and day out. The only days we didn't fly were weekends, Saturday and Sunday, and sometimes we did, you know. Wow. So we would fly and fly and fly. And the whole time I was there, one thing that I was impressed about, and maybe it was because I was the boss of the squadron, but I don't think so, is I only lost two aircraft to uh, maintenance in all in two years there that you is know, impressive that's and that's well yeah for any you know any fighter aircraft. jet because a lot of times you know you're, you're going to lose a sortie for a problem never lost it two times in two years the guys i had made it an excellent squadron i mean the, i still keep up with most of those fellas and i mean they were awesome i couldn't ask for a better group of guys they're flying but anyway yeah we i came on as the boss took it over um we uh we went on a few debts. We went to Mountain Home to support the Air Force. We would go to Beaufort, South Carolina to support the Marines out on the East Coast. We'd go to Miramar sometimes out of Yuma just because we'd have more gas and more range to go out over the sea. That's the only problem with that aircraft. We chose to fly it with no drop tank, whereas the Navy flew their F-5s with a single centerline drop right, tank. Right. We didn't. We flew them slick, which it was a little rocket ship. You know, it was it would go fast. And supersonic was it? Oh, yeah. We almost go Mach 2. I mean, it was a fast airplane. You know, right. you like the burners and get the altitude put it in a dive you can get going real fast too so. must have been a really nice uh two of that but what was the actual f5 like to fly you know out of all the all the jets i've flown other than the uh the a4 it was probably the the least maneuverable oh really yeah it, okay. it, it was surprisingly good you know once slow we had uh maneuver flaps you know that we, you could put out and stuff and you could get pretty slow and fight but but it had this edge to it where you just couldn't like pull and forget. You know, you had to always constantly think about things in that right. airplane because of the little wings and stuff. You didn't want to depart it because if you depart it, you know, you can recover, but it loses altitude so fast if you get it in a spin or anything. And, and some of the sorties, you know, most of the time are flying. By the time you're turning and if you're going slow like that, I might be. 15,000 feet or getting close to the hard deck and the last thing I want to do is spin it because you're going to immediately have to pull the handle if you do that. Yeah. Especially as the boss of the squad. I want you to let that not happen to me or I didn't want any of my Marines that happening yeah. to So my, my, my point is, is you couldn't pull and forget. You know, you had to really pay attention the whole time you're flying the airplane. Mm -hmm. Once you get it into those kind of regimes. Excellent airplane though, maintenance wise. Um, it was, was very maneuverable, very hard to see. You'd be surprised yeah. how many times if 
if somebody loses a radar lock on you, it's over for them. I mean, really? we would, oh yeah, we would come to the merge and somebody wouldn't even know we were there at the time. And you know? it's still going to this day, the F5, isn't it? Yeah, oh yeah, they're still flying them there now. Mm -hmm. Yep. So overall, did you enjoy your time as an aggressor? Absolutely, I did. It went by too fast. It was, uh, it was a good time. That's a good sign though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it went by too fast. And, and, and that was a special time of my life because the Marines that were working with me were just top notch, you know, mm -hmm. all of them were just, they made the, the tour excellent and, and uh, job good for me. You know, they made me look good. You also flew the A4 with Draken. How did this position come about? When I retired from the Marines, um, I still had contacts in the industry and stuff. And uh, a buddy of mine, Jeff Magua Scott, and uh, Snort Snodgrass, who's an infamous F-14 guy. Never heard of him. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Snort. I knew Snort, and uh, and I just they reached out to me and and wanted to know. They knew I was the former CEO of an adversary squadron and uh, asked me if I'd be interested in flying for them. Well, I just started with uh, United Airlines, my retirement gig, which I'm at now, and I was on reserve as a new pilot, so it was kind of a good deal for me. On my days off, I could go fly with those guys, so I mm -hmm. did it. Got checked out in the A4, and it was, it was really different. I had never flown the A4 before that, right? I'd flown the, the Hawk, and so, you know, you're used to a training sill, it was basically, Showing up down in Lakeland, Florida at the time is where Drakken's headquarters were, and that's where they kept their A4s. Is before they got a lot of contracts. And I go there, and uh, and I just basically walk around the airplane with Snort and look inside. He talks about how to turn it on, and you know, and it was a nice airplane. The mm -hmm. ex-New Zealand ones had a, almost F-16 cockpit, had a HUD, oh, wow. had, a, had a, I believe the same radar as the original F-16s. And, you know, it's a single-engine airplane. It can't be that hard, right? So, you know, I fly it with Snort. Snort checks me out. I think I fly three times with him. And he goes, oh, yeah, you got this down. And we're going to, because I was a civilian now, I had to get a type rating in it. Right. That's Amer I don't know if they do that here, but American thing. So they have a guy that's supposedly an FAA guy that can give you a type rating. He's going to come out and give me a type rating of this. And so I'm stressed out about that because I didn't want to, you know, have a, a mark against my record because I really didn't feel like I knew what I was doing in the airplane. But he turned out to be a great guy, XF Air Force guy. And, and, uh, and, you know, we flew the airplane and got my type rating in it. And the rest is history. Excellent airplane to fly. One of the funnest airplanes I've ever flown. Uh, I'm a little bit big for the cockpit, you know, because I got wide, wider shoulders. It's made for a more narrow guy. So it was always a struggle. I mean, once I climbed in the cockpit, I couldn't move. I just had to look straight ahead. I could only turn my head. Um, but it flew like a champ, and that's a neat little airplane. Yeah. So what was the role with F of the Air 4 with Draken? Well, initially, when I came on, we were doing close air support. So right. we were dropping Mark 76 bombs or BD-45s uh, for the Marine Corps, mainly doing it out of Cherry Point, North Carolina, for the Marines going through the uh, TACP school to become facts out in the fleet. And we go and do casts for those guys. We go do two sorties a day, about two hours a time on station and, and get rid of all our stuff, come back, reload, go back out again. It was really fun flying. You know, it was very, very rewarding because I was helping young Marines get their qualifications yeah. that were eventually gonna go off somewhere else to, to do real world stuff. Then Draken uh, got more and more contracts and we started doing uh, stuff out of Nellis Air Force Base, uh, adversary work for the Air Force out of there. 
And then, as you know, Drakken grew. They got L-159s. They got Mirage F-1s. So they just grew into a big conglomerate. I just actually left Drakken a little over a year ago. Oh, uh, wow. Yeah. It just got to the point where I couldn't give them the time they deserved, you know. So you enjoyed that too, eh? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Very much so. Enjoyed the people I flew with, yeah. You know. Brilliant stuff. So we've got a couple of personal questions to wrap up here, Nugs. Uh-oh. <laughs> Nothing hard yet. Uh, so do you have any hobbies? You know, right now, my, my biggest hobby is my family. You know, I've got my wife, who's a, a triple seven pilot at United. My son's uh, in, in flight school with the Navy. You know, my daughter's in college, you know, and my uh, stepson's in high school. So I'm very dedicated to my family right now and doing stuff with them. On my time off, I love to ride my Harley. I got a... Uh, uh, a deluxe that I've totally re, you know, rebuilt and made it a stylish motorcycle. Me and my brother-in-law, who's a UPS pilot, we, fl- we ride together. He's my riding partner. Spent a lot of time doing that. And then traveling with work, you know. Me and uh, my wife, Leah, every time we can uh, go somewhere, you know, and time off, take advantage of our benefits with the airlines, we'll go do stuff together and travel. You know? Oh, bad life. Yeah. <laughs> so far, yep. Exactly. Yeah. Favorite aircraft you've flown? The favorite aircraft I've ever flown. Um, that's gonna, I'm, I'm gonna have to be a political guy and, and, and throw it up as a tie between the F-18 and the F-3. The F-18, because of its pure ability and the fact that flying it off the back of a ship was really awesome. But the F-3, just because of its, it's a very exotic airplane. And I, I think any, any aviator or any aviation enthusiast will recognize that. I mean, the F-3 is exotic. It's different. It's an esoteric type airplane with the maneuverable wings and all its capability and its shape, the giant tail on it. I mean, it's just, it's like, a, it's an airplane that you taxi up and you're not embarrassed to be seen in. You know what I mean? Thank God so you the, said that because I can't wait to tell all the F3 haters because I get so much stick online on social media and saying it's a terrible aircraft. They don't know what they're talking yeah. about. You know? <laughs> so there you go. Are they, do they actually fly it or are they just no, people I, that of don't? of course they don't. You know people <laughs> yeah, that, yeah. of course, yeah. No, they don't know. I mean, if you're a pure pilot, the F3, you can't beat that. It's. I mean, just the look of it, the sound of it. To me, it's the whole experience of it, right? You know, mm-hmm. the cockpit's large. You got a lot of room in there. You got excellent systems. You got a, a nav in the back to keep you out of trouble, you know? Yeah. And, uh, you know, and just the fact, uh, uh, you know, I mean, if a pure pure airplane, it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing to fly, and it's, and it's an impressive machine. An aircraft you would love to fly either past or present? That I would love to fly. Well, that goes without saying, an F4U Corsair, you know. Okay. I grew up watching Black Sheep Squadron on TV. There's an American series about uh, the Black Sheep Squadron who uh, still exists. You know, they were a Harrier Squadron up until not too long ago. Um, but the F4U Corsair, the old American airplane, if you want to talk about a modern airplane that I would love to have flown that I never did, it would probably be uh, uh, an F-16, you know, because it looks like a little... So it's a lot smaller, you know. I remember the first time I seen an F-16. It looked a lot smaller than I than I pictured it, but it looks like a little rocket ship. That'd be fun to fly. You can find me on Instagram on uh, nugs314, so nugs314, and that's my only online profile I have. And one last question for me: What was Snort like? Snort was an incredible guy. He uh, he was hands down the best pilot I've ever flown against. I I did a a one v one in the A4 just with him one time we were traversing going to uh from nellis air force base to Yuma. we had some range space 
And I don't know what he did to the airplane. I mean, it was almost like wizardry or something. <laughs> but he he could he he mastered you know the A4, and there's no doubt he did the same thing in the F14. And and what a great guy, you know. Snort was always had a smile on his face, always there for you if you needed him. Always picked up the tab. Um, he was he was truly a pilot's pilot, and he was truly a man's man. He he sorely missed. I think about Snort quite a bit. Yeah, and his F-14 displays were legendary, weren't they? You Wasn't it, though? Oh, yeah. God, yeah. He could throw that thing around, couldn't he? Yeah, oh, yeah. He, he could fly any airplane. He was just very talented. You hate them people, don't you? <laughs> you know what you hate about Snort, too, is if you look pictures of him, especially when he was young, I mean, he was just, when he was a Top Gun instructor and stuff, he was just, he had that look, didn't he? He was straight out of Hollywood. He just had it. It's not fair, is it? Yeah, I know. I mean, why can't, anyway. <laughs>